Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. This is our final episode for the conference and will conclude our annual conference content. We hope you enjoyed it, and we're looking forward to seeing you at next year's conference. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Marty Rowland. He served in the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation as a senior project manager for environmental remediation in order to help the city improve environmental quality, bettering the living standards for all New Yorkers. He has taught at various institutions such as Pace University and here at the Henry George School of Social Science. He is also a senior fellow with the Asset Leadership Network, a group that promotes financial awareness as a way to achieve social objectives. To sustain the affordable housing programs we've been discussing, we will need sound public policy that addresses the root causes of the crisis. Understanding previous land and housing policy can be a useful guide for navigating our current dilemma. In order to craft the best possible policies, we will need to comprehend how programs in the past have failed. Understanding this can improve future policies to maximize social outcomes. Dr. Rowland earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan and his master's from the University of New Orleans, both in environmental engineering. He later went on to earn his PhD in natural resource economics from the University of New Orleans as well. Dr. Rowland joined the Henry George School to discuss land and housing policies during the Progressive Era, how rent controls and community land trusts impact well-being, and how land value tax policy has been considered over time. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. I appreciate the opportunity to speak, and I'm going to cover uh, some of the things that were brought up by uh, by Rick and a few others. Uh, maybe just kind of cap this whole thing off. But um, so this session is rethinking housing policy, alternative pathways to affordability, and I, I guess I want to um, uh, uh, support what uh, Rick just said. And I'm talking about let's do alternative pathways upon firm ground, and maybe they'll make sense in this, as I go. So the idea is that we can't grow crops on infertile soil, and this is what the uh, the concept of reform movements are as lasting as they are deep. And when I'm talking about reform movements, so you go back to uh, the early days of uh, Henry George in the 19th century and through the early part of the 20th century. Um, and essentially what was going on with the what was called the single tax movement, which was to do what uh, Rick was talking about. Uh, I'm saying after the, the old people die, you know, the question is who's going to carry the torch. 
and as was uh, pointed out very expertly, is that uh, get the 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 issue of uh, land value return in the constitution of the state that you're in, uh, then you can have a pretty deep uh, system to, to rely on. So many cities have attempted to provide this kind of thing. Um, but if you go back to 2014, um, uh, despite efforts, 9% uh, of homes in uh, New York City were affordable, where 51% earn less than 55K. And the top one fourth of New York City who makes 114K can afford the average uh, like 600,000 home. So you see the, the challenge right there. And then uh, Brad Lander made a point of this that every year because of past tax abatements, we're paying uh, $1.8 billion. That was the, the bad deal that we signed up for and it's uh, continuing to kill us. And the question is whether we want to continue funding 421A type abatements. And I think everybody should be uh, uh, running out of the house to uh, make sure this thing doesn't happen. But we hear that people want the uh, tax abatements for luxury apartments. Uh, it's not going to happen if we uh, exert our, uh, our opinions and do something about it. Uh, so we, we heard a lot about community land trusts here, and that is an important thing. Uh, Cooper Square, which was uh, mentioned uh, by Caitlin and others. Uh, there's 21 buildings there, the 326 units. It's a very good example to emulate. But even upon that, there's billions of dollars of unearned land that uh, value that walks away every year. And one of the things that it's a little confusing to people is that when you implement something like a, a land value return where you're capturing the the land value, you're you're bringing the the price of the land down. Uh, so the fact that there's let's say one dollar worth of uh, land um, that's evidence that there's still more land value to capture. and I, uh, I'm not sure if that's clear to everybody, but, uh, uh, we've got a hell of a long way to go to implement a, a Georgia's concept of um, finding the, the the wealth to do all the things that uh, are needed to be done. Uh, so state legislatures need to take up the, whether you call it land value taxation or return, universal tax abatement, needs to be taken up as a, as a target, uh, not some token uh, bowing to luxury developers. So if you go back to 1920, there was a law um, that was passed in New York State. Uh, it was, uh, uh, I think it was a affordable housing law of 1920, chapter 949, section 4B, if you really wanted to look it up and exactly what it said, uh, it took the uh, it took the property tax and eliminated the the building portion. So essentially, between 1920 and 1931, New York State had a, a land value tax that affected uh, you know the whole city, and uh, other cities outside of New York took advantage of it. And you saw uh, uh, great uh, uh, growth and um, wealth being created. Uh, 
Um, even in Buffalo and Syracuse, there was a, a benefit. Uh, in, in Massachusetts, and I'm just citing a few, we've heard about other cities and other instances, but Massachusetts had a, a 1969 zoning law that uh, was encouraging, um, I guess what you'd call a, a split rate uh, tax, where you tax buildings uh, less and they tax land more. And in Michigan, uh, significantly, there's uh, a consideration uh, for a split rate tax. Um, so there's um, the single tax movement that I mentioned earlier, uh, it was the late 1890s and 1930s, uh, essentially died for a lot of different reasons, yet the people and organizations carry a, a smaller torch today. But uh, sometimes you, you can't, you take what you can get. Uh, and when your adversary is big, and you can't uh, extract uh, uh, enough land value so that the price of land goes to zero, for example. Uh, you do things like rent control. You do the, the best you can. And I think Brad Lander made uh, several examples of, uh, of um, you know, you have, to, uh, you have to understand the reality of, of the politics uh, at the time. But uh, when you do have power, which we hope... Uh, more and more people will understand. You do things uh, for permanency, uh, like the community land trusts and those type of activities. Now, it's important to realize like in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, I bring this up because at our first uh, conference that Henry George had in uh, January, 2022, uh, we heard about uh, from um, Patrick Condon and he mentioned the, the Cambridge example. Well, they ended rent control in 1994. And the, the reason they're able to do that is that they came up with a comprehensive approach to affordable housing. Uh, even though the, the enabling legislation was 1969, it took a little bit of time, but through a variety of mechanisms, including community land trusts, the city has created 10,000 permanent affordable units in a city that's only 117,000. So if you took that rate, which is like 8.5% uh, and you did similar things, if that's possible, uh, New York City would have 700,000 affordable units. Uh, maybe a bad analogy, but I guess what I'm saying is that uh, there's a, a strong buy-in in the uh, city of um, Cambridge. So uh, in New York City, as I mentioned, uh, between 1920 and 1931, you had uh, a split rate tax of zero over 100, which was zero for buildings, 100 on land. Uh, there was no tax on buildings and everything was on land. But what you saw was a, a building boom because of that. Uh, it's, people weren't paying taxes on on buildings, they're um, they're high, uh, they're uh, taller, more stories. The law ended in uh, 1931, um, but you had split rate taxes. Uh, they exist in a lot of different places. Uh, so the the example that I bring up is that in New York City, you had 32.7 percent of growth, uh, and that includes the uh, the depression in the 1930s. So uh, New York State uh, and New York City did something very smart 
you would think as if they knew that the depression's coming and they did something that kind of bridged that whole period. Um, you had uh, greater growth in New York State than other East Coast cities. And if you want more on this uh, example, uh, Mason Gaffney has a, a, a 2001 uh, paper on this that you can get off the internet. Um, so New York City leveraged tax policy in tandem with mass transit. So the wealth that they're create, uh, collecting uh, through land value taxation, the property tax, was uh, it allowed them to pour more money into mass transit. And it's one of the ways that they kept the fares at five cents all the way through uh, 1947. Uh, but this wasn't possible without uh, competent assessments, something that um, Dodson brought up a few times. And uh, it's just something that needs to happen because we will probably hear in the Q&A uh, if somebody asks a question about, well, what happens when you don't do competent assessments? You might, you might lose your advantage of having something that's uh, sensible. So uh, in Cambridge, so it's uh, 1992, uh, there was a publication uh, about um, uh, Cambridge growth policy toward a sustainable future. And it goes into the, the two-pronged strategy that they had was encourage the expansion of the housing supply, but uh, preserve the range of existing housing opportunities. So they, they went beyond the uh, land value capture and took advantage of every opportunity to promote uh, affordable housing. So I guess the question is, uh, can other cities do what uh, Cambridge did? Uh, if you got the, uh, if you may not be aware, but there's a reform mayor in Detroit who envisions a split rate system that is not quite uh, zero over 100, um, but uh, it would be taking enough to uh, take the speculative properties and put them back on the market. And probably importantly, and this is a, a good way of selling uh, land value capture like Rick was talking about, you show the people generally that 97% of homeowners are going to benefit. So when they call up their legislator um, uh, talking about this uh, opportunity for Detroit, uh, they should be having the phones coming off the hook because they have an opportunity to gain this benefit. And in my last slide here, I just wanted to say that there has been a lot of research done uh, in the, the Detroit example. There's a legislative analysis done where they said the split rate uh, property tax system is worth further investigation, uh, reduce the or eliminate property tax abatements, uh, promote density, development of underutilized land, uh, provide a system that appears to be more equitable in providing benefits for redevelopment. Uh, one major hurdle would be it requires the adoption of legislation changing the state's property tax code, which is not an insignificant undertaking. So this kind of underscores everything that we've heard today. And I, I was really encouraged to hear uh, the comptroller of New York City 
say that uh, land value capture return, uh, uh, the, the concept that we've been talking about are high in his uh, agenda and uh, his thought uh, for how we make affordable housing. So uh, we need to explore those op opportunities and uh, promote uh, the Henry George theory of how to, uh, uh, to improve the, um, to improve the progress, I guess, of the human race uh, and uh, uh, minimize the uh, the poverty. So those are my slides. Uh, I know we're getting late in the day. I think it's a good time to have our discussion. Hey, well, I want to thank uh, all of you. Uh, those are four uh, very informative uh, presentations. Uh, but now uh, you need to be tested by the public. So I'm going to go back uh, in reverse order and ask each of you a question, and then we'll open it up to a uh, general question. So Marty, uh, uh, is very provocative uh, when you said that the reasons uh, that the single tax movement movement died in the 30s. So the question that came to, to my mind is, were any of the arguments used to kill the movement in the 30s? Uh, be resonant today such that we would have to uh, overcome them now to make our case? Well, um, there were a, a lot of uh, political, uh, uh, well, I think one of the uh, the things that happened during the, uh, the, the teens, the 20s and 30s, uh, the United States moved into a uh, income tax mode uh, and originally uh, supported by uh, single taxers because they thought that that was a opportunity to capture monopoly wealth from uh, rich people by having a property tax, uh, by having an income tax. So it was kind of like shooting themselves in the foot because they kind of strayed away from what Henry George was talking about. So it, it led to confusion within the uh, the movement of what is it that we're really going after. So uh, I think clarity of uh, purpose and clarity of mind. And and uh, I think another thing that was uh, a problem in the early movement was uh, you need to get people who are in the community to stand up and voice it. Uh, maybe last one uh thing to say is that there was this famous example in Missouri where you had people coming from out of town talking about we need a land value tax and they throw in eggs and tomatoes and all this uh what they needed to have as a as a farmer saying yeah it, <laughs> this is what we need and this is how we'd all benefit so it's a matter of really um uh, it's a game you know it's like you get ready for the yeah. Super Bowl you don't uh uh, drink a case of beer and show up. So to paraphrase you, if if Georges had a bumper sticker, it would be "Don't shoot <laughs> yourself in the foot." <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Rick, your question. Um, uh, and I want to preface it by saying uh, I, you know, I'm in a hundred percent agreement with everything uh, you said. Uh, I've written about it myself, and uh, 
So therefore, I'm biased and think you are also correct, right? Uh, but I do want to ask one uh, question about how an enhanced land value return actually would make uh, for more affordable housing because uh, while the land capture uh, is making the price of land less, in other words, what remains after the tax is collected, that tax is still paid for the full value of the land, correct? So correct. how does that translate into lower housing prices? Well, there, there are two ways. First of all, you can't neglect the fact that we're going to reduce the tax on building values. So the tax on building values is a cost of production. If you reduce the cost of production, then what's produced gets cheaper. So that reduces housing prices there. Now, when you increase the, the, the tax on land value, if all the land in your community was utilized to its fullest extent, you're absolutely correct. It really wouldn't change affordability. It would simply change where the rent people paid went. Instead of going to private landowners, it would go to the public sector. But, there's a big but, most of our cities have lots of underutilized and vacant land. We're talking about surface parking lots. We're talking about vacant lots. We're talking about lots with boarded up buildings. And when the the increase on land value tax, when that hits those owners and forces them to sell, then you have a real uh, downward pressure on land prices because people are bringing their, their land to market, whereas before they'd been hoarding it. So again, if you've just got one property in a community, or if all the properties are used to the highest and best use, you're right increasing land value return does not make land cheaper. It simply changes who gets paid. But because there is so much vacant and underutilized land in most of our cities, this will actually result in real reductions in land prices and real reductions in, in what people pay. I hope, thank I you. don't know if that was clear, but. No, I was just going to say, thank you for clarifying. So uh, I thought that was clear. Uh, okay, so uh, in reverse order, Caitlin, you're next. Uh, I, I was just struck uh, by the photos you presented with us and how in Barcelona, the design of public housing is almost even appealing. Whereas uh, in New York, at least, I can't speak for all of the United States, but in New York, at least, uh, it's generally thought of as an eyesore, uh, public housing. And I'm wondering uh, if, if you gained any uh, understanding about what makes us so different as uh, city communities. Yeah, I can absolutely speak to this. I think this is a really important thing to think about and understand um, when we're thinking about public housing in the U.S. Um, so if we're thinking about New York, for example, um, I don't know if folks are familiar, I'll drop a link in the chat after this, to the first public housing uh, building that was constructed in the city, which is called First Houses, and it's on the Lower East Side. And First Houses looks like a, your regular 
pretty fairly nice six-story like cooperative maybe um but the building costs the government thought the building costs were too high so essentially we were told to scrimp and save and scrimp and save and scrimp and save until we got to look like kind of all of these and then modernism also happened so those kind of two forces created this storm where we ended up with tower in the park style buildings but also i think there is it goes a lot deeper in the united states than just and i've seen that there's been some uh, discourse in the chat about this in the united states we do really have to talk about how much deeper that this goes than just design there is really really racialized social stigma against public housing in this country where like public housing is a lifeline in a city like New York where we actually still have it. Um, it houses 5% of New Yorkers and a lot of those folks wouldn't be able to live anywhere else in the city because the rent is capped at 30% of their income. Even like folks looking for section eight vouchers, we have source of income discrimination. It's not enforced at all. As I know, um, Folks, the woman who worked at Just Fix, her name is escaping me right now, um, was talking about earlier. So really, these have become places where people are really rooted in their community. And I think a lot of this has to do with failure at both the state and the federal level to fund NYCHA. Um, the city cannot raise revenue um, other than property taxes without permission from the state. Um, and obviously, they should be doing more for NYCHA. There's no question about that. But because um, really the city and the state are the two bodies that have the true power of the purse, um, these are hundreds of thousands of black and brown families living in a city that is failing them every day. Um it is not Barcelona financially constrained as well? Uh, these constraints are different. Um, I believe the Catalonian government has been cooperating with them fairly extensively on a lot of these housing policies. The ability to kind of claim uh, housing and buildings that were left vacant for a really long time is actually a policy that was passed by the Catalan government. Um, and the Catalan government has been doing a lot more to kind of push this type of kind of social um housing infrastructure especially after a lot of uh news broke about blackstone um in kind of the beginning of the pandemic and even before that i believe uh there was a lot of uh press about blackstone when some social housing flats got sold off in madrid and i think that really created a push and i think at the city level um I think this is a really interesting, we live in a very interesting and very anti-urban country generally. Um, and I think that that has a large impact on the way that both kind of the regional and the national government are treating the working poor in this country. Um, public housing was initially funded because veterans coming home from World War II were living in public housing. Um, and there was a lot of screening, which did create a lot of problems and it was very segregated but when i guess the government felt as if people at, who were living in them were worthy of housing 
it got funded. Um, and I think that that says a lot about the values that these kind of government officials have held um, kind of in uh, the 60s and 70s. Um, and it's something that we need to invest in. We need to kind of maintain housing for the public good in New York City and beyond in this country. Um, and things like Hope sure. Six have demolished public housing units and have created public-private partnerships where even if the same number of units are built, which typically is not true, a lot of those units are turning into market rate housing um, to create mixed income communities, which doesn't always work out in practice. It's funny how real estate is filled with people who break their promises, huh? Uh, and so Tom, thank you, Caitlin, very much uh, for indulging me there. Uh, Tom, uh, uh, also uh, a brief, uh, the briefest presentation uh, for this panel, uh, but none, nonetheless very provocative. And I wanted to ask you, um, how you would go about beginning to repair the idea of an inclusive community, uh, either in, in a, our city or, or our country or anywhere, really. And, and I want to couch that, uh, uh, I hope this is fair, uh, in the time you were talking about when unions were strong and, and the economy was robust, uh, you know, people of uh, African-American uh, persuasion might have a different view of how inclusive communities were in mm. those days. Uh, so well, I, was, I'd like to ask you to address that as well. Yeah, sure. Well, let me address that first. That, you know, you have to look at it in terms of rate of change, right? I don't think anyone would, would uh, disagree that from Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 through the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the, the, um, um, the the rights of, of African Americans uh, expanded pretty dramatically. And in fact, what's even more interesting than that is the fact that if you look at, at black incomes, uh, black male incomes versus white male incomes and, and uh, black females versus white females, that actually started to converge beginning in the 1940s. So even before the Brown versus Board of Education and when black schools were in, in dire shape in, in both the South and the North, by the way, which is kind of interesting because uh, there was there was tons of, of segregation in the North that wasn't legally uh, incorporated into the Jim Crow, Crow laws, but but there, there was a lot of segregation and a lack, a significant lack of investment in public high schools, for example, which is, as you probably know, the public high school movement that transformed um, 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 education for for uh, people of all races in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, and so uh, what was the first part of your question? Again, so how do we begin to uh, act in a way or speak in a way that would repair the idea of an inclusive community? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's, I mean, I think Henry George is the inspiration, right? I mean, he had the, the most popular book of the 1890s, except for the Bible, uh, so you could say that the, the best-selling uh, nonfiction book, and um, you know, I think it's 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 really important if you look at the history of social movements. You know, Teddy Roosevelt was was highly inspired by the other um, how the other half lives, which was a book written in the late 1890s, and he would actually go out 
uh, in disguise and go to the Lower East Side of the Tenements, which is also where you know Henry George got a lot of his inspiration for Progress and Poverty, and and understood and and developed the compassion uh, for what was happening and that there really was an other America in 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 the, in this country. Um, same thing in the 1960s. You know, Michael Harrington. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but in 1959. The, the poverty rate in the United States of America was 22%. And so you can say what you want to say about the great society, but, but the, the, and then Michael Harrington wrote the book, um, The Other America, and really brought home to a lot of people, including JFK and, 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 uh, and Johnson, how much poverty really existed in the United States. So, so as Henry George is our example, we need to inspire people. We need to um, uh, as I said, prick the conscience of the nation and really bring about this because a lot of people don't care about housing because they don't really understand what the disparities are and they don't understand how people are living in, in their condition. And that's, you know, that was sort of our, our concept behind Telosa. You know, the, the, the name was derived for the, from the Aristotelian concept of, of Telos, which is ultimate aim or highest purpose. And, you know, our, our aim is to provide a more equitable and sustainable future. And so part of that is, you know, repairing some of the damage that's been done in housing and providing a blueprint by doing that for other cities around the country to follow both new cities and, and existing cities. So it's it's really a matter of, of, of consciously bringing this to the attention of people and exposing the fact that there, there are people who are living is in, in, in very desperate and dire circumstances. Okay, thank you for that. In, in, the, uh, in, the same, in the same way, just if I could add, Steve, you know, in the same way that we're talking about land value uh, return, you know, a lot of people aren't, you know, when I first started doing this and I explained to people about land value return, people had no idea. They just, I mean, even people who are very socially conscious and, and active in social justice uh, causes, no idea about land value return. So it's an education process, it's inspiring, and it's it's bringing about a movement and increasing a movement where people will be uh, inspired and motivated to change and become passionate about it. Well, you know, it's a good point, and it actually ties in with all four of you. You know, at some level, we're talking about uh, messaging uh, and how to message uh, these issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't want to be like... Uh, Marty's people in 1931 and shoot ourselves in the foot, right? So we have to uh, try to get it right, but it's it's a lot. I, I think it's a lot easier said than done to come up to find the right way to message this stuff. Um, but this is why we're talking. Okay, so you know we we spent this last uh, panel. Uh, well, let me just specifically say thank you to. Uh, Tom Rossman and Caitlin Penner and Rick Ryback and Marty Rollins for your presentations on this panel. Uh, it, it was very edifying. Uh, thank you. Uh, and earlier, uh, you know, we had people uh, in government, people out of government, uh, advocates uh, outside of government, trying to work with government. Uh, we had people in the real world and people with with more uh, uh, aspirational uh, ideas about how things work. And I think what was truly wonderful about today 
uh, aside from uh, the quality of all the presentations and and uh, our ability to get people like New York's controller to speak, uh, is is the idea that uh, people tend to live and work in in ideology ideological silos and uh, understand the world from their point of view, uh, which typically extends to the corner of their office and accomplishing <laughs> their job. Uh, and the fact that uh, people in different walks of uh, life, as it involves uh, trying to get housing improved uh, across the city and the country and the world, really, uh, we're able to hear points of view from outside of their silos, I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, so uh, I could name everybody, but, uh, uh, well, I may as well, Josh Ryan and uh, Brad uh, Landler, Lander, uh, Angela Stobel, Mark Molyneux, uh, Lindsay Duval, Ross Karp, Brendan Cheney, John Krinsky, and our panelists who I, who I mentioned here uh, all did uh, uh, a, a marvelous thing for uh, just tweaking the world a little bit in a better direction. So thank you all. And uh, on behalf of the Henry George School, uh, uh, thank you everyone who participated and asked questions or just listened. Uh, we appreciate every form of participation and uh, we'll look forward to uh, serving you as best we can again soon. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.